Welcome to the Reboot Republic podcast, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and I'm delighted to be joined today back on the pod by uh, a guest who got a great response the last time he was on, um, James Cawley, policy officer with um, Independent Living Movement Ireland. James, it's great to have you back on. Hi, Rory. How are you? Thanks for, being, thanks for having me back on. Delighted to be back on. Yeah, great. So today's an important day, James. Do you want to set out for our listeners why it's important? Yeah, I suppose, uh, you know, it's the European Independent Living Day. So it's a, it's a big day to, to mark, I suppose, the rights of disabled people and our, I suppose, collective rights under a, the Convention uh, of the United Nations Convention for Disabled People to, to have the rights upheld. Great. Yeah, no, it is. And, and it's really, I'm glad you came on today. And, you know, you got on to me as well about saying this would be a good day to do it. So it's important to helpfully contribute to, you know, awareness raising and um, making a genuinely inclusive society. James, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Because, uh, you know, just tell our listeners a bit about you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my name is James Gawley. I'm from Longford. I'm um, a son, a brother, a husband, uh, a friend, a co-worker. I'm also a very proud disabled person uh, and I work for a national disabled persons organisation which is led by and for um, disabled people. Uh, we focus on, I suppose, a few strategic areas around housing, transport, employment, and then an independent living support called Personal Assistance Services. Um, I'm from rural Longford, so I'm from Drumlish, a small village. I'm the youngest of nine children. Um, I went through mainstream primary school, secondary school, onto university in Maynooth, where I spent five great years of um, academics but also partying as well which is really good really good <laughs> enjoyed up there and um, yeah then I went on I trained as a teacher worked as a teacher for a number of years and then um, was always stuck in activism um, in, so, in some shape or form and I ended up um, applying for this position uh, as policy officer with Independent Living Movement Ireland and four years later I'm, I'm here as policy officer and we're involved in many national campaigns around the rights of disabled people. Yeah, and, and it's something that, you know, um, I was struck by, like, I love your your attitude and your bit of divilment. And it's something that um, is, you know, I wonder for you, you know, as a disabled person, do you feel included in Ireland today? Do you feel that this is an inclusive Ireland? <laughs> I definitely think we've made strides towards inclusion, diversity, equality, but I think we have still a bit of a way to go. And I think, you know, there's still an awful lot of work to be done. And I think, again, when we talk about, and I would have been involved very much in an awful lot of awareness campaigns when I was in university and schools, in school, etc. But I think we've moved away from that now. We've now we need to start looking at disability and impairments and diversity from a human rights and equality perspective. And I think that's where the magic can happen or that's where it should be at. It's because mm. we all we all should be able to uh, be involved in services and cultural life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think definitely there is times where I suppose I personally feel included because when I have, and I said this in the podcast, the last time I think it's when I have my personal assistance or access to them, when I have my powered wheelchair, when I have can access a nightclub or a, a restaurant with my wife or the cinema or the theatre, but when I can't, 
that's when I don't feel included. And I think that's where um, that can be, create an issue where disabled people are not getting the services that they need to live their lives like non-disabled people do. And I think that's where we all need to work together to um, educate people, but also to build allies around, you know, that again, when we're doing our campaigns in um, Isle of Mice, some people might think, oh, that only affects disabled people. Yeah. Well, actually, it doesn't. It's a campaign about human rights and equality and they're campaigns that can impact everyone, our sons, our daughters, our brothers, our, our husbands, wives, friends, co-workers. And, and I think we need to continue to think about disability and chip the shape or change the way we think about disability and how it shapes the landscape for everyone and not just us as disabled people. Yeah, and I was really struck by that in reading some of the material around the UN, you know, rights of disabled people, that the, this idea of that everyone in society loses when disabled people can't contribute to their and reach their potential um, because we're losing that, you know, we're losing so much that and rather than seeing it as you know something that is a cost to society and that you know that actually it's the complete opposite that there's so much that you know we become fuller as a society when disabled people can contribute and be they play be their part to fulfill their potential yeah and i think that's important to say as well that like as disabled people and anybody in, in society again we have the intersectionality that we are sons brothers husbands wives etc and I think that goes across all um, groups of society. And I think if we can engage a diverse group of society, that's how we learn, that's how we flourish, that's how we can kind of progress the rights and the realisation of rights. Because it's one thing about talking about rights, but yeah. it's another thing about realising the rights and making sure that we implement uh, policy structures and systems. Because again, what we talk about in ILMI is the social model of disability. We don't, um, quite often in Ireland, and we were very um, stuck in this medical model of disability where we talk about disabled people, we don't involve them in decision making around their lives. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, the social model of disability, actually says it's the policies, it's the structures and systems that actually disable us. And a human rights perspective is moving around. And, and as you say, um, involving disabled people in every facet of society that and having that lived experience so you know again if it's around human um women's rights you would engage with women you wouldn't engage with men and we see that with um disabled people sometimes when there's rights been discussed about our lives we're not engaged with so that's why yeah. it's really important that we continue to consult and engage disabled people around the rights and their yeah. own their own decisions as well and of course, it's not just about engagement then on a tokenistic basis. It's actually about changing society as well. And as you say, you know, removing the barriers and changing the structures so that, you know, we can have an inclusive society. Maybe we could talk maybe about some of those you could outline in terms of today. What kind of things are you, you know, discussing and calling for? Yeah, absolutely. So to, like even today, um, to mark the day, you know, we're having a massive webinar um, at 1 p.m., um, on realising the right to, to a personal assistance service uh, for disabled people to achieve independent living and to live independently. So just a little bit of background to that, so yeah. for your listeners as well, like a personal assistance service, generally um, people think uh, the misconception is that a PA is a carer or is my carer or is many people's carers. They're not. It's distinctly, a personal assistance service is distinctly different from a carer in the sense that 
the a PA or a personal assistant works for the disabled person or mm. on direction of the disabled person yeah. to help, help them carry out daily tasks inside the home, outside the home, to engage in uh, economic life, political life, cultural life, etc. And it is um, mentioned actually in Article 19 of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, which we did ratify in this country in 2018. And I suppose we have, um, it's 30 years now since the, the introduction of the Personal Assistance Service into Ireland. And just for your listeners to know as well is that it's still a pilot programme. There's still no legalised right, even though we have, uh, despite us ratifying that UNCRPD. So we, along with um, our members, we've consult- we consulted them since 2018 around this issue and, and started a campaign. And what came out of that was to define five asks around defining what a PA service was, around legislating for a PA service, around investment in it and standardising it and also promoting it because some people don't know that this mm. is a support out there where they can live, um, you know, independently. So today we have a great lineup of speakers. We have, you know, Mr. Anne Rabbit's going to be there. We have Thomas Springle, uh, Deputy Thomas Springle, who actually brought the motion um, and got unanimous stall motion support in November 2019, and we also have Senator Aaron McGreen, who got a lot of local authority um, support as well. So we had the national, but also local level and grassroots level support. Uh, and also we have Senator Eileen Flynn, who's a great human rights and equality ally as well. So yeah, we're really excited about uh, today's event. And let's say as well that this is not the end. This is only the beginning and, you know, a, a conversation and dialogue that we need to continue with our TDs and our senators to continue to get this personal assistance service made uh, into or written into legislation, if you like, and, and legislation brought about for it to be human rights and equality um, issues. So we want to get debates in the Shannad and in the Dáil. That's the next step. Great. Yeah, no, no, it's it's, it's really, um, you know, so important that, that we do that. And do you want to explain a little bit more about, like, what can the personal assistance, um, you know, service do like in terms of you know going as you said they're not cares but like and you know you say it's a pilot at the moment could you explain a little bit about you know just yeah what what has it, it achieved for those who have it and maybe what those who don't have it can't do yeah so i suppose fundamentally it's all about choices it's about control it's about um having your dignity uh, as a person it's about being able to be that son that brother um, that husband, that wife, whatever. Um, so it feeds into all facets of our lives. And I suppose, you know, the personal assistance service is a service that allows the disabled person to have full control and say, right, I want to have my dinner at this time. I need assistance with cutting the, the vegetables to put into my dinner. I need assistance with uh, personal care. It could be going to the pub. It could be, I don't know, going shopping, doing whatever. Yeah. I suppose the thing is, that it's about um, us achieving all those things that everyone else may take for granted. They assist us in all uh, physical tasks that we cannot do for ourselves, um, for example. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's very much different to a carer because I suppose the carer approach is very much that you might see, say, for example, with some service providers, for example, that they would have, and, and I have to put, set the, this straight as well, we all know the valuable role carers play. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But this, is, this, this is, you know, this, this personal assistance service is, you know, a service that some disabled people use, not all disabled people, but it's again about us having the choice and control. And for people who don't have a personal assistance service and who would like to have a personal assistance service, to go back to your question, it reduces dependence on family and friends. And say, for example, aging carers in the homes. Um, because we know from a report we did, you know, with Inclusion Ireland, that there is loads of loads of aging carers in the homes. And if disabled people had a personal assistance service that's adequate and appropriate for them, they would be able to uh, alleviate that uh, dependence on family and friends, and etc., and be able to have choices and control. Um, like, again, another example would be some disabled people attend the day service because that's the only inverted commas service that's out there. Well, if they were given the monies directly to themselves to be able to have a personal assistance service, they could get more bang for the buck in terms of being able to decide what to do, when to do it, and not be kind of, if you like, um, just, I suppose, in one service, if that makes sense. They would be yeah. able to decide whether they want to go to a day service or whether they want to go out to the cinema or do X, Y, and Z, like um, non-disabled people. Yeah. And in terms of the um, the government response to this, has there been a response? Is there is it something? Why hasn't it been implemented more? Is there reasons for that? Is it financial or what is it or what excuses have been given or? Yeah, well, I suppose the thing is, like I have to say, in, since we've had that, um, you know, install motion, we have been working, as I say, at, on the ground in terms of with local authorities to get all those motions happening and then we have been engaging with um uh the government and Mr. Babbage who is very supportive but like everything I suppose uh, a personal assistance service and it does probably cost money but again I think it's about how um this can um enable us to to live and I I would say as well that it's probably um even cheaper to give us a personal assistance service then giving somebody into uh putting somebody into say a day service or into an inappropriate setting like we know from the capacity review um in july 21 that was uh, commissioned or published by the department of health that it does cost twenty five thousand per person per year to go into a day service well again if that was given in a way of a budget a personalized budget to a disabled person they would be able to decide um what they want to do and where they want to do it. So I think, you know, after the webinar today, that's where we'll hopefully get to follow up with all the TDs and senators to make sure that this is progressed, that this is debated and that this is looked upon as um, as a right. And because it feeds into us accessing housing and employment and education and relationships and everything. Yeah. So it's yeah. a really um, important life that cuts across so many intersections. Yeah. And of course, there's always, you know, with any social investment, you know, the argument around cost is often too narrow that there is not the, you know, the inclusion of the, you know, the mental health costs of, of enabling people to participate in society that, you know, we pay at the moment that you could reduce in terms of, you know, if people had those supports, there's the capacity to engage in employment. But there's also that, as I spoke earlier, that, you know, the loss of a person's, you know, ability to engage in society, to be what they should and can be, that that 
you know, in some ways we need to say, well, that's an investment as a society we need to do regardless of, of cost. Yeah, but again, though, um, Roy, I would say it's actually, um, it, 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 it works for everybody. It yeah. works for the disabled person, for their families, for the PAs, for the government. Why? Because if you employ, if you have a personal assistant, it means I get to work, for example. It means my PA is working. It means my wife gets to work. It is it's reducing the dependence on family. So it means uh, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, then people who are traditionally caring can go out and work and can be also taxpayers. So it's actually a, a win-win situation for everyone in terms of, you know, the, the 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 feedback into the economy, but also, as you say, the dignity, the respect, the 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 freedom, the liberation it gives everyone as well. And I think that's it. It's it, that's what's core to it, really. Yeah, yeah. And of course, as well, the the other side of that then is that having a service, and um, because there is an issue in the kind of the privatization of services, that these should be public services that are are not for profit. Um, done which provide decent working conditions to the the personal assistants themselves as well because we see now in 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 a lot of the, the hse contracting of care you know carers are are paid very poorly do you know what I mean are not given proper contracts that i'm sure that's a side of it that you would be absolutely supportive as well yeah and i think that's where if we empower disabled people as well to continue to push for the personalized budgets and um, to be able to have a direct payment that's where the disabled person can fully be in control where they can actually you know engage and have a dialogue with their personal assistants set their own um i suppose uh payment rates for example their their hours etc and again i think it, it allows um the conversation and the working relationship just to be directly between the disabled person their pa and to have that employment relationship so i definitely do think and but i think it's important to say that disabled people need to feel empowered and be empowered to um have that direct payment and and to to also build their capacity around how they can do that uh, but some some disabled people do decide to go through service providers because the stage that they're in their lives um maybe is that they need all the, the admin work to be done by a, yeah. a service provider but we would take on the active role as being a line manager for example and yeah. that does work so there is a few models um, and I think that's important for us to say as well because everyone's at a different learn a journey like everyone is in yeah in their their road to personal assistance their road to independent living and etc etc you know yeah yeah no great great it's it's um yeah, it, I think it's it's something that is, you know, really needed, and particularly one area which um is something that you've mentioned already, and obviously an area that we cover a lot, uh, cover a lot is the whole area of housing and the ability to access, uh, even the the principle of independent living. You can't independently live without access to housing to actually live independently. And how do you see sort of the crossover with that, and sort of. How do you see the what's your experience of the housing crisis as well at the moment for, um, you know, disabled people? Yeah, definitely. I think like um, we do know that we had the new national housing strategy for disabled people 22 to 27, which was launched, I suppose, in January of this year. And like that has the six themes, you know, and there is some exciting stuff in there. Even theme two talks about interagency collaboration and the provision of support. It also talks about strategy 
alignment in team in team six and you know there is certain things that are in there that are kind of would make you think right this is going to be we're going to have a system that communicates but what we do know is that from you know some research we've done along with inclusion ireland as well and ourselves is that we do have a system that when you apply for a house lots of people and get the offer of the house but they can't take the house unless they have the support package from the hse and the hse won't sign off unless there's a house and so disabled people find themselves as i said before caught in that catch 22 and that that's something that like i'm really delighted to see that in the new strategy that there is this interagency collaboration but i really do hope that you know this follows through and that would be really interesting when we hopefully see the implementation plans come out um around this new national housing strategy for disabled people because at a local level we have that national strategy but then at a local level we have the housing disability steering groups which are tasked around writing the strategic plans and setting out the kind of objectives and aims of to house disabled people so i think we need to see a bit more of that working relationship between these local authorities and also um uh, HSE and other agencies to make sure that there is communication, but that also it does positively impact for disabled people to be able to to live in a house. Because there's no point again uh, giving somebody the offer of a house and if they need support, holding it up because they can't get the support. So there needs to be that kind of centralised, um, I suppose, way of thinking, but also application process that would make that um, barrier less for disabled people or even abolish it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, of course, part of you know the worsening affordability crisis, you know, the higher rents, higher house prices, you know, disabled people, you know, generally are have some of the highest deprivation rates in society that they're further locked out by a worsening housing crisis. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's the thing that um, it's definitely affordability for disabled people um, in terms of housing is is difficult because the other thing is, uh, and we know this as well, that if you don't work uh, and have a, a disability or an impairment that you might say, apply for a social house, for example, and you might get in on, uh, you might get a social house, but if you work and you're over a certain threshold, um, with a disability in Ireland or as a disabled person in Ireland, um, you can't get on a housing list. Um, yeah. But yes, we have a cost of disability report that came out in December last year, which states that disabled people incur between nine to 12,000 additional as to non-disabled people. So like that's an interesting uh, way to look at it even, that if that nine to 12,000 was added on to them, um, the the you know the income thresholds yeah, yeah thresholds yeah yeah you would see that that would bring you know that would allow disabled people to to qualify work and to qualify mm. um because the other thing is as you said lots of disabled people who don't work are fall into the and those who do uh, can fall into the poverty trap and it's it seems to be just a cycle that can be a difficult one to break and yeah. so I think if we acknowledge the work of that report and show that we do incur the additional cost, that that could some way alleviate um, and make housing more accessible. I don't mean in terms of the steps, I mean in terms of actually getting in and getting in on that affordable affordable housing market as well um, for us as well. 
Yeah, because I talked to you before about that. Like, you know, it's it's why shouldn't you know disabled people be able to buy a home as well? It's like this, you know, there's nothing you know orient you know policy for support disabled people who face those particulars. You say, you know, and, and in comparison, I was looking at um, the CSO for the first time. You might have seen it produce statistics which show the after the rate of poverty after people pay their housing costs, um, and what it showed was for. Um, it broke it down by different social groups. And again, um, disabled people faced, you know, one of the higher rates of poverty after they paid their housing costs. And I was thinking, as you say, if you added in that additional, then 12 to 15,000 a year cost that disabled people face, it's going to be pushing them even more, even more into poverty. So there needs to be specific, I think, mechanisms and measures that do support disabled people to buy and rent affordably. Yeah, definitely. Like, because I think, you know, in that report, it, it's crystal clear. It says that disabled people experience additional costs in relation to housing adaptation costs and, you know, assistive technologies and, um, you know, cost of accessing particular services, etc. Um, and I think that that when we have such, I suppose, data like that, that we need to then apply it and, yeah. that, and how it's going to be, um, you know, um how it could be applied to um, such uh, an issue that's making a barrier for disabled people in relation to housing. Um, and I think that would make it more affordable uh, for disabled people then to be able to get it, as I say, get into that market and to be able to buy their own homes um, as well as uh, be those who access it in terms of social housing or renting, etc. because it's such a difficult market for um, disabled people to compete in at the moment. Yeah, yeah. On a much wider question, do you think that there is still a stigma with disability? Or do you think we are more tolerant and open and and discuss it and it's not seen in a negative light as in the past? Um, I think, you know, I think, again, we have to remember that... um, it's not too long ago that disabled people were, uh, for want of a better word, hidden away, really, and uh, as well in the sense that, you know, were um, institutionalised, etc. And I think we've moved quite far on in Ireland, but I think as well that um, it's about, you know, disabled people, again, um, feeling empowered and linking in with um, organizations or disabled persons organizations to show to see the level of peer support, the level of collective action that's out there. And I think to even be educated around what the social model of disability uh, can mean, because I know, for example, lots of people could say, or lots of people would say, oh, I um, you know, take the DIS away from disability and I'm all ability. And I would have been a a person that probably would have said that years ago, but now yeah. I actually identify as a very proud disabled person because I feel it's an identity that I um, acknowledge, the identity that I would promote. And I think it's one of great pride that I, I would often talk about. And if somebody, for example, said to me that, oh, you're you're not, a, you're, um, let's take the DIS away from disability or the different ability, I would say, well, no, actually, I I, I do identify as a very proud disabled person because I know what that means and I know what it means to me. It's about, you know, values of equality and empowerment 
And it's about changing the systems and structures that do disable us and put barriers in our place. That's really interesting. And I'm really struck by that, that pride of it, like you're turning it on its head in a way. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, something I feel very um, strongly about now is, and, uh, you know, I, I would always uh, quite often would say that when, if I'm speaking of something that I, I am proud to, to call myself a disabled person because I feel that strongly about it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a really, it's such, there's so many ways that we have to, you know, change our thinking and, you know, change our society as well. And and, and I was struck by that there's a number of campaigns which you've probably seen around access. And, you know, there's one parent who's bringing their child in a wheelchair around Ireland, you know, showing the highlighting, the difficulty of getting public transport around Ireland and, um, you know, issues that, that still show that, Attitudes are changing, but our structures are still have quite a way to go, haven't they? The way, yeah, definitely. I think that's uh, James James Castle. You're you're talking yes, about there. That's yeah. it. yes, that's yes. Yes, I right. couldn't yeah. remember the name. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, Jimbo's. Um, I've been following that on social media, and um, so he's flying around the country. I think and yeah. all modes of transport. So fair play to him. And um, and uh, yeah, I think again. Um, it's about even um, if we could, if we're thinking thinking about genuinely inclusive societies, we do need to think about making, for example, our transport system fully accessible. So we shouldn't be living in a society where we still have to give four hours notice or twenty four hours notice or you know notice in general, because I think we need to be equipped to be accessible for everyone's needs and. Um, and again, even not just, um, I'm not talking from even a uh, physical impairments perspective, we need to t- think about, you know, the audio announcements, we need to think about people who are blind, you know, who are deaf, who have um, sensory impairments, uh, it needs to be cross impairment, I suppose, uh, we need to be accessible in terms of cross impairment, and even in terms of accessibility sometimes gets pigeonholed into this physical access, yes. but we need to be accessible in terms of communication, in terms of information. And I think that's really important um, in all facets of life as well. Yeah. Listen, James, it's great as always to have you on and uh, more inspiration for why we need to have a human rights and equality based country. And I think that uh, they're the values that should be driving this society. So listen, thanks a million for coming on and keep up the uh, the promotion of it and the advocacy, which you're doing so well. Thanks, William Roy. And can I just say, if anyone's interested in coming to today's uh, webinar, they can reach it, reach me on jamescawley at ilmi.ie. So that's jamescawley at ilmi.ie. Thanks. That's brilliant, James. And so the Independent Living Movement Ireland's website is ilmi.ie and you can check out and get James' contact there. James, great to talk to you. And uh, I know um, congratulations as well. You uh, you got married uh, in time frame my head is gone was it was during covid wasn't it yeah it was indeed yeah 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 <laughs> yeah exactly so covid wedding but look <laughs> congratulations on that thanks William. Cheers. yeah great james james Cawley there from the independent living movement in ireland as always um such a brilliant advocate um and articulate voice um for equality and human rights and uh you can check out as he said the webinar today um and on ilmi.ie and as always thank you to our patrons who are our supporters 
We Reboot Republic is an independent media podcast. We get no advertising, no sponsorship. It is funded by our listeners. Um, and if you can or you're able to um, help us out with the cost of producing the podcast, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. Tortoise Shack is our media production, um, which is done by Tony Groves. And you can sign up for whatever you can each month to help us keep this show on the road. We've lots of podcasts um, done in the recent months and go back further years. Um, I think we're hit, hitting close to now 350,000 downloads um, over the almost four years of Reboot Republic, which is incredible. And um, we have thousands of listeners each week. And we really value all of those uh, who do listen. And we had some lovely feedback to the podcast I did with uh, Rob Sweeney of Task on land and housing. Um, some great feedback on that. And also, the podcast with Rosemary Mohan from the Irish Traveller Movement as well it was excellent uh, feedback on that as well. You can listen back to all those on tortoiseshack.ie um, or check us out, Reboot Republic, at Reboot Republic on Twitter. Or you can contact me at Rory Hearn on Twitter or Instagram and let us know what you'd like to hear um, us discussing on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And please, if you can, share it around, share the podcast around. And let people know uh, how they can listen and that you're listening and enjoying them. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all soon. Bye.